everybody. It's Lance Dawson. I am here with my co-host, Andrew Stewart. We're back for another amazing episode of Backstage Lowdown. Today, we have an awesome guest, Blair Packham. In the words of Ron Sexsmith, Blair is one of the most underrated or unsung songwriters in Canadian rock history. He is a past member of the Jitters, and he is our guest right now on Backstage Lowdown. So here we go. fine good glad we're doing a show i am glad we're doing a show too uh uh, in a minute i'm ready (laughs) tell me tell me mmw can't cover this song am i right i can totally see it there is no reason that you guys couldn't i know i just pitched it to mark this morning Oh, fantastic. I did. I did. I said, I sent it to Mark and I said, like, it's, I think Blair's trying to log on here. Yeah. I uh, hang on a second. Oh, I'm, I'm loving this guy already. Look at the gear and the back and the guitars. This is going to be awesome. But, but this isn't visual. No, it's oh. not. <laughs> no, but it's just for me. Okay. That I'm enjoying the guitars. We were actually just enjoying, enjoying, uh, the sounds of you, my friend. We we're just hang on a second. Huh? there he goes that's like a little head bobbing i can't escape it no 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 i'm sure you can't no, it's you a great can't tune, escape it i was it's on such a great song just the other day and and uh the the guy described said it's it's your uh most popular song ever and i thought yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what though Blair, like the Jitters had a lot of a lot of great songs and you've written a lot of great songs. And I know I know that's like, you know, the one that everybody hangs your hat on. But I've always defended anyone. And and this doesn't apply to you because you're not a one hit wonder. But whenever somebody says that phrase, I always get a little frustrated. I said, do you know how many people that have zero hits like none? Well, none. So Uh, if you can write an iconic song that is part of Canadian rock and roll history. That's that's awesome. I wrote a song called One Hit Wonder that you should check out. It's, it's on my uh, my middle record uh, that the odds were the backup band on. Do you know the odds? Yeah. Yeah. OK. And it's it's a heck of a song, actually. It's about and it was written because I saw Bobby Pickett, the guy who wrote the Monster Mash in a parking lot. I came out of a movie theater and yeah. there he was and he was just launching into the Monster Mash. And I thought, oh, poor, poor bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Here he right. goes again. Yeah. yeah. But uh, then I thought, well, nobody's going to ask me to play, although it looks like they will. But I, I was going to say, nobody is going to ask me to play my <laughs> stupid songs, you know, in a parking lot in 30 years. And um, and then I thought about the whole concept of the one hit wonder and how stupid that is, really. That, In fact, the song says that. It says, um, and we laugh at the one hit wonder. Well, what the hell have they ever done? Have they ever had a <laughs> yes. Have they ever had a hit or uh, no? Yeah. And they laugh at the one hit wonder. Well, what the hell have they ever done? Have they ever had a hit or hit the heights? Um, yeah. Uh, well, the one hit wonder had one, at least the one exactly. hit wonder had one. God damn. Like, one hit wonder had one. 
Exactly. Exactly. There and are and you know people what? That, that have written yeah. hundreds, if not thousands of songs <clears throat> that will never be heard on the radio. That's right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that plug, Andrew. I appreciate that. You're welcome. It's really nice of you to talk about my songwriting when we're trying to interview. It's, it's coming. That's it's awesome. Coming. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, that's great. No, you know, and the other, <laughs> especially in, in like this whole woke cancel culture era where we're so quick to criticize everybody and I, I'm just I'm impressed when anybody voices their own opinion about anything because there's always such a backlash, you know, a tsunami of backlash. So, yeah, I was, yeah. I was more freer to express my opinion when I was younger, um, but I feel like nobody needs to hear what I have to say. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to offer if asked, no, no question, but but you know, just freely offering it on Twitter or whatever, I tend not to. I'm uh, I'm with you on that, but I have a question since you brought this up. Mm -hmm. let's launch right into it so we're like mid podcast now uh, just to <laughs> bring you up to speed um you know as a songwriter like it's funny i've i've read lots of articles about you know from different songwriters and oftentimes they said you know i i really i'm in my 50s now and i feel like i finally have something to say because i've had some perspective and life experience and yet and, and and arguably i might be singing better than i ever have and the whole industry is still youth obsessed and it, they they're not interested yeah. And how do you feel about that, Blair? Because you, you like you said, you, you probably have more to say now. Yeah. And I and I I'm writing better songs. There's no question. I mean, when I think of the, the there's a jitter song um, closer every day, the bridge it, lyrically is just ridiculous. Like it's ridiculously <laughs> bad. And yeah. um, and I, I would never write anything like that now. Um, I mean, it makes me laugh when I sing it, when the jitters get together and, and we, we do a show once a year, when we get to that song and the bridge happens, I crack up every time <laughs> so bad. Um, but, but, you know, humans are youth oriented. Um, humans are attracted to youth. Humans are, are, uh, have, especially non-musicians who I call civilians, right. they, uh, they aren't, they don't think about the process that goes into it. So they want to see somebody who they believe is youthful and, and energetic. And um, they want to, uh, I've thought about this a lot, you can tell. They want to, um, they want to believe in the romantic notion that music you know, just happens, that you don't work on songs. It just happens. And, and, and if you say, yeah, I worked on that one for a couple of years, people are like, oh, OK. But if you say, yeah, it just came out of me and like it took less time to play the song than it than it did to write, you know, or it took more time to play the song. Than it, and, you know, right. and, and they love that romantic notion that art just happens. I'm not sure why. It's, maybe it's because it's magical. Um, which it is definitely undeniably the process of writing is, is magical to a degree, but there's also work involved. And if you don't believe that you're going to write a bunch of shitty songs. So I, I believe that the, the world is kind of youth obsessed and understandably. So I also believe though, that it takes an awful lot of work and energy and connections to get in a position to have a hit record. I believe I've written a couple of hit records since the jitters but I wasn't in a position to make them hits, to have people hear them. And I lacked, you know, th those opportunities, you know, passed by. And, and it's, it's fine um, because at this point I'm, I'm writing for myself and I still think I write catchy choruses and, and so forth, even though it's for myself, because I want to, that's what I want to write. That's what I like. Yeah. Well, maybe consider like a short skirt and some Doc Martens, maybe a little belly shirt. Maybe that will put you, put you in the running. On me, it wouldn't be a little bit. That's the thing. Uh, Blair, I can I can turn off Andrew's mic for you if you want. I, just, I know every once in a while Blair. he insists on speaking, and I don't know why it happens. It's just awful. Here's so that I agree with that. Uh, first of all, about the writing process, that I feel like it's 
it's like 90% discipline and then there's 10% talent and whatever else you want to throw in there. Right. And, you know, you write a hundred, you write a hundred songs to get something that's worth listening to. Um, I'd agree with that. What do you think about this theory based on what you just said? But I think that people sometimes want that notion that a song just, and it does, I I've had that happen. A song just falls out of you. It doesn't mean it's a good song, but it just sometimes happens. It often is though. A good song. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. But yeah. then I think that if, if they have this idea that this person just, you know, the song just happened and now they're out singing it and stuff, I kind of think it gives them the ability to also criticize that person and say, well, you know, really, are they worth the millions they're making or thousands they're making? Because that didn't take a lot of work and that doesn't look hard on stage. And you know what I mean? And they're just having fun. The the um, the whole money for nothing idea. Right. The- that ain't working. You know, that's the way you do it. Um, it's uh, yeah, it, it's it all comes from this romantic notion, which the music industry and songwriters and performers promote because it people like it, uh, that it's easy and it's all fun and there's no hard work and there's no downside and uh, you're just living the dream, you know, and uh, I'm not I, I mean, I loved my time on bigger stages and stuff. It was fantastic, um, you know, and I had my share or almost my share. And uh, sure. I love, probably Lance's as well. Yeah, I probably. I Did love, you take my share? Oh, <laughs> come yeah. on. I, come I, on, I, man. I play on little stages, too. And I love that a lot, too. You know, I play, yeah. you know, in a little trio right now. that, And I just love playing for anybody who listen. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. People think, though, that it's all fun and games. And why would you get paid for that? And I think, right. why don't you do what you love? You know, what, whatever it is, first of all. Yeah. Uh, you know, wh- why and 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 why wouldn't we all get paid for why do you get penalized just because you love what you do? You know? Yeah. If well, somebody- there's an uh, yeah, there's an underlying um, boy. I don't know if I could. This is now. See, we've gone down this rabbit hole where uh, if I continue to voice my honest opinion, I'll probably, you know, get canceled. But I think there's an underlying um, socialism in the fabric of Canadian philosophy. And so we want everybody to be healthy and happy, but we don't want necessarily anyone to do too well. Right. Yeah. I you mean, know, I think that's part of the human condition, maybe, maybe a little more magnified in Canada, but, but uh, yeah, the tall poppy syndrome, uh, you know, anybody gets too big for their britches, you want to take them down a notch or two, um, that kind of thing. And I think if somebody's having too much fun, that's great. As long as it's on their own dime, I'm not paying for that. Right. And, <laughs> And I, to me, yeah. it's, it's a bit of a prison mentality, actually. It's like you've got your arm around your meal at, at prison, like stay away from my food, you know? Yeah. So and you've had you've had a, a meal with Andrew as well then, because that, that's exactly how that goes. <laughs> it's interesting you bring that up. That's great. Keep that okay. Oh, no. That's just your pint that disappears. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. It's, it's funny. It's a funny business, you know, where, where, uh, and I don't even know if I'm in the music business really anymore, because what is the music business? Is it the live thing? Like our cover bands that play at, you know, the local Firkin pub, uh, are they in the music business? Um, uh, you know, are his music business limited to major labels and publishers? Is it big concert stage festivals? Is it uh, doing what I do a lot of, which is do songwriting workshops? You know, is that right. still the music business? I, I don't really know. I was on the radio for 11 years. I was on CFRB in Toronto doing a show yeah. of music. And is that the music business? No, I mean, clearly it's the radio business, but, you know, they, they, it's a Venn diagram, I guess, you know? Yeah, I, I think there's overlap. But I, I don't know. I like to be positive about things. So I would say that if somebody's out 
playing at the the Fox and the Firkin or something. And, and they've worked hard enough to take something public, you know, and, and not necessarily, maybe they're getting, it's monetized. I don't know, but I think that they're all, it's all part of it. It's like, you know, if I see somebody that's starting a running program and they say, well, I'm not a runner. I'm like, well, you're out running. Yeah. And, that makes you a and, runner. And I, and I like that to be inclusive because I think if it, if we only say that, you know, only musicians that make a certain amount, like, oh, you can do it full time. Well, then I guess you're the music industry and everybody below you is not. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't buy that. I've met too many talented people that are, they're not monetizing it and they're phenomenal. And, you know, so. I was at Canadian yeah. Music Week yesterday and uh, I heard in one of the seminars, one of the music, one of the label guys um, describe people who aren't signed to a label as hobbyists. Wow. Ouch. Yeah. Well, eh, and, but I'm dismissive i think yeah there are a lot of people out there who aren't signed to major labels who are do doing better than many artists who are signed to major labels so right so, hobbyist i don't know but it, yeah. it seems condescending and dismissive and uh that's a problem with human beings as well it's not it's not limited to the music business right and i'm saying i guess that art that label guy probably isn't a musician he's probably just, not yeah yeah he's a suit <laughs> yeah um right. yeah no that's that's interesting um hmm yeah, it's a good it's a good point. I, I just think that that's yeah, that's kind of dismissive. And I'm, I'm you know, and how are we going to encourage people to get involved in, in live music? And yeah. um, if that's the attitude we we have, I was always amazed, honestly, to, to, be, to be completely honest. I was always amazed that I was making any money at all uh, playing an acoustic guitar in a bar or a club when I would be doing the same thing in my apartment for free anyway. Right, right. <laughs> So maybe that's where that attitude goes from. People are like, oh, I feel, I feel like if you're taking money for it, there's an obligation to be good. Um, right. Uh, and, on, on, and, and some kind of obligation to the audience. But honestly, I'm selfish as a performer. I, I, I do it for me. When, when I can make them laugh, that's for me. Um, right. I enjoy making them laugh. I enjoy making them sing along or whatever. And if they don't, eh, well, you know, that's too bad. But um you know, when they do, of course, it's a delight, but I'm not a very generous performer. I said to um, my bass player uh, the other day, we were seeing this band really butcher this trio, actually not, not even a full band, but they were butchering a Rolling Stones song and getting the words wrong, which I think is highly disrespectful to the songwriter, not right. like making up yeah. better words or different words, just getting them wrong and then playing badly and out of time and stuff. And the audience, a small audience, but they were going nuts. And it made me mad as a guy who really works on his songs. It made me mad. I don't want to make this whole thing, by the way, about me complaining, but uh, it made me mad. And I said to the bass player, what? wait, so when you said the audience is going nuts, you mean like in a positive, like they were affirming what they, they were, they were loving it. They're singing along and clapping along and they're woo wooing. And you know, that sound. Oh, right. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> and I said, in the correct words. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> exactly. And I said, um, these guys, like what? Like, you know, why did, why did the, I, and he said, they're, they're getting a feeling. They feel good. It feels good to the audience. They like it. And I had to dial back my annoyance and think, oh yeah, that's why we're here. You know, <laughs> to elicit a feeling. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and meanwhile, I teach that when I teach at Seneca college or in my workshops, I say that, remember why we're writing a song. It's not to show off your guitar chops. It's not to, to show you're a great poet. It's, it's to make people feel something. And if right. you don't remember that, then you're going to lose that opportunity. You know, you may lose that opportunity for connection. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. But I, I have to admit to being um, having a little bit of that attitude myself, yeah. because, um, you know, sometimes if my wife and I go out to see 
maybe not like an open mic night or see you just see somebody else. Let's go see somebody else perform and see how they're doing. And I don't know, I have this thing about if somebody's up there with an iPad reading lyrics, yeah. it bugs me. And, right. and my wife will say, well, you know, if, when you go out and show, you could, you could do 20 more songs you never do because, you know, like, why don't you have the iPad? I was like, because the very least I can do, what separates me in my mind from sort of the campfire hacker that's got a, a you know, a, a book, the very least I can do for these people is to learn the show. <laughs> and I know that's, I know that sounds elitist. I know it does, but I just think there's gotta be some difference between somebody who's going out and sitting there and playing and how are you how can i sing and elicit a feeling other than the normal nausea i get from my singing but other other how am i supposed to elicit a feeling if i'm reading at the same time and yeah. so my my baseline is like the very least i owe these people is to memorize the lyrics yeah i i feel exactly the same way although i've used the ipad i've used it for set list because it's you know super easy <laughs> organized set list but um but i don't use it anymore because of that i don't want to be seen i i, I got i was self-conscious so i would say to people um uh yeah you may have noticed the ipad here uh i'm uh, i'm watching jurassic park <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, that's awesome yeah but but uh i uh, clearly i was self-conscious so i would i i eventually stopped using it altogether now i just have a piece of paper at the at the, uh, the sharpie I, I sometimes use cheat sheets maybe you know, yeah. for a new song, because I have trouble remembering my own lyrics. Um, but uh, oh, you're that oh, I love this guy. Thank you. Please. <laughs> Can you call every I want you to call everybody in my band, Blair, and just tell them, say, you know, <laughs> so yeah. I was like, Lance, you wrote this shit. How are you not How remembering? I know it. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, well, it's you know, it's way different than uh, you know, a song you might do that you've heard a recording of a hundred times and sung along to, and now this song is freshly born and you got to remember the words. It's it's a different thing, it's a different animal, you know. Yeah. Plus, as the writer, hopefully you've gone through a bunch of rewrites. I say hopefully, because a lot of writers have that romantic notion that you don't you shouldn't do rewrites, that's somehow less honest, which is complete BS, by the way. Uh, Leonard right. Cohen would rewrite for literally years. Hallelujah went through a hundred drafts, you know, before, before he recorded it. And uh, uh, Leonard Cohen was always about changing words here and there and so forth. And yet, you know, he seems, he seems to have done fine as a songwriter. <laughs> um, but people want, again, it's a romantic notion of what artists do. Artists are up in their garret, you know, like um, just wildly creating in between, you know, sips of absinthe and uh, snorts of cocaine <laughs> or something, you know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like that whole idea uh, to me is bullshit. You know, artists have kids and they have to feed them and they have to pay rent and, you know, and they have to buy guitar strings and, and they have to be at the dentist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, they have lives and, and, you know, sometimes you fit in your songwriting between your, you know, your um, dentist appointment and your, and your gig down at the, at the Dollarama or whatever, you know? Yeah. You had a, an article I was reading that was really, I think it spoke to that in a, a roundabout way about, you know, if you're waiting for a creative streak or inspiration or the, just the perfect time to sit down and write a song, you're probably not going to be writing a lot of songs. That's and, right. and I would agree with that because I, I find that it's, I haven't written for a little while and it's just, you know, life, everybody's busy. So I never, I've really trained myself never to say I'm busy because it's everybody's busy. 
but there's a, there's a certain level of activity right now going around in my life. And I'm like, I cannot seem to carve or I've chosen not to carve out time to write because there's just other things I've prioritized. Right. So it's a choice. I, I, unfortunately, I have the, um, I guess I inherited it from my dad. The, the, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the hardest working guy in show business by any means, but I have a work ethic that doesn't allow me to view writing songs and working on my music as work, as legitimate work. Somehow, I feel that I have to be, even if I'm like, you know, gardening in my house, I'm, I'm improving right. the value of my house, you know, or, or whatever. Right as opposed to writing songs, which actually paid for the house. You know? yeah. <laughs> the whole reason I have a house, the, you know, instead of spending time vacuuming, write another song, Blair, you know? Exactly. That yeah, way you can yeah. afford the flowers for next season. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And see, and at a different level, when I'm working on my house, and I wrote that song and it paid for the rake. Pay for the house. Maybe might pay for the rake. It wasn't any one song that paid for the house. And and also there was a lot of TV music in there, uh, which um, again, the romantic people who are most people think of, yeah. you know, if you're writing for TV or film that you must be a hack. And, uh, you know, it takes an incredible amount of creativity to, to write for, um, like write on commission, you know, to be given right. a list of things to do and then have to do that. It's really challenging. So I, uh, I don't consider that hack work at all. There's better music and there's worse music in TV and film, but, but I, I respect very much the amount of work it takes. And uh, I did want to ask you about that. How did you even end up getting into writing for TV and film? Totally by fluke. I've been a very fortunate guy in the sense that for timing, for instance, I, when I was 19, I went on the road with some cover bands. And after about a year and a half, I decided no, can't do this anymore. I want to do my own songs. I'd already been a songwriter before I started playing in cover bands, but I wanted to go on the road and it was shitty. Um, right. Uh, and, but you could make a living, a terrible living, but you could make one during Northern Ontario in those days, because that's how old I am. Uh, uh, about a, two weeks after I got home from the road and I was really thinking, oh man, I'm, this is, this is bad. I have no money. And my parents, you know, they would, of course, they'd bail me out if, if, if but I didn't want to ask. And I, about two weeks after, I got a phone call from a recording studio guy that I had met when I was producing recordings. I started producing people when I was 16 in high school, just going to a wow. studio. And this is before laptop production, like I was doing it in a real studio. I would, I would convince them that because I had been in the studio and they hadn't, I therefore should produce them. I wouldn't charge them. I'd take them in the studio. We'd rehearse first with the band and I'd get the bass drum sitting with the bass and so forth. And then take them to the studio and record them. And then I, and I did that over and over and over again with different singer songwriters from my school and from other places. And so that guy called me, the owner of that studio, his name is Doug McClement and we're, we're still close friends, but he offered me a job like two weeks after I stopped going on the road. And then, um, then, you know, I worked with him and then the jitters were formed and then uh, the jitters got dropped by our label Within a week of being dropped by the label, I got a phone call from a guy who wrote TV music for TSN, among others. And he said, yep. TSN wants so-and-so. They want a, a hockey theme and they want it to sound like so-and-so, so-and-so, or the jitters. Because we were popular enough that we could be used as a reference. For sure, sure. Sound reference. And, um, and he said, well, I know the guy in the jitters. I'll call him. So, <laughs> you know, because he didn't know Huey Lewis or whoever the other <laughs> people were. And... Um, that's interesting. The you know the jitters and the the news actually do. There's a there's a Venn diagram thing there. Absolutely. Absolutely, it wasn't on purpose. The ones we get are are Huey Lewis in the news and Doug and the Slugs. Now Huey, okay, yeah, 
Eagles we liked and we opened up for him uh, at CNE uh, Stadium. 24,000 people. At his request, in fact, we were invited as an yeah. unsigned band. That was in the 80s. Yeah, that was 86. Uh, I was there. Oh, there you go. I was. It was great. You're the back. So <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so, but but Doug and the Slugs, no disrespect, because I'm friends with uh, Simon Kendall from Doug and the Slugs who wrote those songs. But we didn't listen to those songs and we didn't you know, we didn't. It's not like we thought, oh, we could take those songs, that kind of slightly humorous wry sort of thing. And with yeah. the notes in the bottom end and and we could write some songs like that. Didn't, we didn't even really notice. But right. those are the two bands we get compared to a lot. And uh, yeah. it, in the case of Last of the Red Hot Fools, which is our only song with all those stacked harmonies, it does actually sound like a Doug and the Slug song because they song because they did that stacked harmony thing a lot. So anyway, my point really was in, to answer your question was just that I'm really lucky. And the TV music thing came from this guy just calling me out of the blue. And I'm a guy who believes in saying yes to the universe. If, if somebody asks, you know, can you do this or, you know, can you do that? I do it. And that's how I got into, into jingles writing commercials, which is different from TV and film. TV and film, it's called long form. And then, yeah. uh, and then um, jingles are short. They're 15 seconds, 30 seconds at most usually these right. days. And, and, and likewise teaching. Um, when I got into teaching, somebody said, do you want to do that? The radio, somebody said, you, hey, would you like to host a radio show? And, and these are all just things that I said, yep, I can do that. Instead of going, hmm, well, I don't know. What are the implications? Foolishly or otherwise, I said yes. And um, the TV music, that first TSN thing, the NHL Tonight theme ran for seven years before they bought the rights to Hockey Night in Canada. That, it was our theme until then. And we were like, curses. Uh, wow. But, uh, and so it ran for seven years. And then we also did, we did tons of stuff for TSN and for Global and CBC and CTV, uh, all kinds of stuff. Some of the other specialty networks, uh, W Network, HGTV, uh, OLG, like all the, all the, a lot, a lot of them. We did theme songs. I started doing animation music, like theme songs for cartoons uh, awesome. in the 2000s. And uh, I still do that today. I've got one on my desk that I'm supposed to start working on. Um, I did uh, a pitch on one last week that didn't, or a few weeks ago, it didn't land. Did three things though for animated stuff, three theme songs, I don't know, a month and a half ago. I'm, I'm still busy doing that and I really like it. And it's not hack work. <laughs> I, always, yeah. I always feel like the people who say that are people who either don't play music or they play in weekend bands. And I'm feeling like you're judging me because you're judging me. I've had a whole life making a living in music and you're you know, writing my own songs, writing, writing is, you know, and you're judging me anyway. Now you go down that whole list and at the beginning you questioned, well, am I really in the music business? Yeah. I'd say that you are. <laughs> well, yeah. <but> I mean, <laughs> That's a pretty, pretty extensive list. If I, well, if I teach at Seneca College, yeah. I'm thinking, is this music business or is this teaching? You know, but Venn diagram again, you know. Yeah. So. You know, we had a, a podcast not too long ago where I spoke with a, a friend of mine, Steve Hogg, who is a... Uh, a dynamite bass player he's a multi-instrumentalist and he's he's worked with um amy sky and i guess he was part of Ron, ronnie hawkins at, at at one point he was part of the hawks and stuff but he was talking on that podcast that he he'd read a book uh and this was back in the 70s i think 60s or 70s where you know you played with one band you're really loyal to that band but he read this book about how to make a living in the music industry as way back in the day yeah. and basically as he said on the podcast the premise was just say yes. Do everything. Diversify. Do every diversify. Yeah. Do everything you can yeah. because the people that 
you know, make a really good living doing like one thing are like 0.01%. So if you want to make a living as a musician, you do everything and then you make connections and it, it starts to, you know, uh, have a, uh, some sort of inertia to it. And yeah. so, you know, I think he spoke to exactly what you're saying and there's no, there's no shame to doing anything. You're doing something at a professional level and using your musical talents to do it. So good on you. Right. Yeah. Thanks. I feel that way too. When I played, you know, big stages, I played Wembley arena, you know, I've, I've played uh, the CNE exhibition stadium, as I said, and, you know, when we've opened for the kinks and the birds and heart and, you know, uh, all kinds of big people, Huey Lewis, as I said, and, yeah. uh, and, and so I've had my share of that kind of thing and your share too, Lance. Um, but I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I've also had all these other Thank great you experiences, that. you know, like I've interviewed Steve Earle, who's a songwriting hero, you know, awesome. I've interviewed yeah. interview twice and I've run this songwriting workshop where, you know, we had, we had guests like, like people I really admire, like Jules Shear or Stephen Page, Ron Sexsmith, uh, Bruce Coburn, you know, people at our songwriting workshop who I was able to sit down and talk to and, and, and get insights about songwriting from. And, you know, if I were just focusing on playing. I, I do think about Ron Sexsmith, for instance, who's a, an old friend, and I think he only does the one thing. He doesn't teach. He doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't do it. He doesn't host a radio show or anything like that. And I thought, I think like the pandemic was very tough on Ron because he only had the one thing to do and that was gone. That was performing, writing and performing. Right. And, uh, and, and so while I envy him at times when I'm working on some TV theme pitch and it's not going well and that happens, you know, I envy somebody like Ron. Uh, sometimes when I'm teaching and I'm having a, you know, a problem with one of the students, uh, you know, and I, and I think, well, you know, Ron Sexsmith wouldn't have to deal with this, you know? <laughs> so that's right. <laughs> Jim Cuddy probably, Jim Cuddy probably pays somebody to clean his cat box, you know? Uh, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I'm, I'm a real down to earth guy. I want you to know that. You clean your own cat box. Yeah. I'm at a level where I'm still, yeah, I'm not. not I'm still real, man. Box. I still clean my cat. <laughs> is, service. Is this the currency that we're now measuring musical success in is litter boxes? That's that's it, right? That's hysteric. Well, that's so that's so Canadian. right? <laughs> How successful of a musician are you? Well, still have to clean my own cat box if that's exactly. well you could do what i just do i i had a child he he does it oh that's, well that's yeah. part of a, that's one of his gigs well yeah. you know i've been a i've been a, a derelict father actually derelict dad because <laughs> song title by the way uh because my i i let my son son off the hook in so many ways he's 20 years old and he, and he barely does anything I, when i ask him he'll do it but he has sure. no restrained habits and if he sees the cat box is you know messy or whatever he doesn't no he no doesn't here dad's gonna do it yeah and and dishes on the counter yeah no problem you just leave them there somebody will get them i don't know who does that i don't know how they magically disappear into the dishwasher uh but uh yeah yeah so i understand well, he's just really trying to keep you down to earth is what he's yeah. doing he's he he's there for you he doesn't want me to turn into a, a jim cuddy like monster no exactly <laughs> and what a monster he is <laughs> poor jim yeah oh wow yeah yeah no, I, I once yeah. uh, I, I went to my brother-in-law's Thanksgiving a couple of years ago, and um, there was a woman there who wasn't introduced to me. You know, we arrived sort of flurry of relatives arriving, putting down your bags and, and hugging hello and everything. And there's a woman standing off to the side, just smiling. And uh, and I'm thinking, nobody's going to introduce you. You're not going to introduce yourself. So I went, hey, I'm Blair. She said, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> uh oh, what does that mean? 
And then, uh, then later she came over and sort of sidled up to me and it turned out she was my brother-in-law's girlfriend, by the way. And she sidled up to me and she said, um, I brought something for you to sign if you don't mind. And I thought, oh, okay. So that explains that I know who you are remark. The, the look. Yeah. So she, she, we find a Sharpie and I start signing. It's the Jitter's second record and I start signing. And she says, as I'm signing, you know who I, but, but you know who I really love? as i'm signing the autograph right so i write on top of signature i write so sorry i'm not jim cuddy yeah that is awesome came her autograph oh that's great that's great i we're all sorry we're not jim cuddy damn it that's just a shame but but it's the it's the but you know who i really love as if i after you know I know, you know, just saying, you love me, don't you? She's like, yes, but you know who I really love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Yeah. So I'll yeah. get you to sign this, but yeah, yeah if get- Jim was here. Oh, the, the same thing happens uh, sometimes with, um, uh, you'll be, you know, I'll be somewhere and, and very rarely do I sign an autograph these days at all, of course. But in the days when the jitters were happening, it was pretty frequent. And, and but yeah. it was, if it wasn't like an older, like a guy in his 20s, older meaning not a kid you know not a teenager right he would uh, often often i heard hey i'm not a fan of your band aid but my little sister is would you sign this and i think you could just say would you sign this for my little sister yeah yeah and i would still get the message across that it's not for you so no need to be embarrassed chad you know um, <laughs> oh chad's now listening knowing that you've just called him out I just, no I just, the call the the call out was that he used the name chad <laughs> I just made that up. Uh, no, I know this because my name's Lance. I'm I'm on that list. No, no. <laughs> but if you do that to me, you will forevermore be enshrined in one of my stories. So. Well, it's just a dickish thing to say to anybody. You know, it's it's like when somebody dies on Facebook, like a famous person dies, and on Facebook, somebody somebody will say, "Yeah, I was never a fan of his music, but it's too bad he's gone." And it's like, okay, why the hell do we care if you were a fan of their music? Like you're, it's somebody. Yeah placing a stake in it they're putting a pin in their taste and they want to make sure that you know that they have better taste than to like that person who just died but you're also not a monster so you're going to say that you're sad that they died and it's like it's all about you this person has died right just behind relatives but you need to make it about you you know well i i don't know my theory on anybody who's posting anything on facebook about something that happened yeah so they want to post about their own lives fine have at it it's sort of akin to the you know somebody's slideshow back in the 80s but if, if you're going to comment on something that's happened that and generally it is something bad somebody's passed away or there was a shooting or texas and you know thoughts and prayers and all that shit that's really about just like hey, don't forget about me yeah during all of this this artist has died but don't forget about me because this is what i feel and i'm like really like you know come on yeah so yeah. any comment yeah that's too bad. i i do it's <clears throat> not to comment at all, mostly, usually. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think I it's, die, it's great. Keep your thoughts to yourselves. Yeah. You know, Andrew, I was thinking about asking you for your autograph, but I'm not that big a fan. I just, <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll sign your Jitters album. Oh, okay. I appreciate that. I just can't, you know, it's really interesting to me. I was going to talk about this when Blair left because it's weird, but I just said, you know, it's interesting that I was a teenager and I watched the Jitters open for Huey Lewis in the News, had a great time at that concert, 
flash forward, you know, 10, 11 years. <laughs> and I get to talk to one of the jitters. It's great. I love it. 50 years later. Yeah. Whenever. Yeah. Exactly. yeah you know, it's I'm trying to get better lighting in this whole gig. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, just, so what's next? Camera. Camera. I know what's next for you where I mean, you've got this huge musical journey, super yeah. successful past and present. So what what what's sort of next on your to do list? Uh, retirement, but that doesn't mean stopping playing music. In fact, all it really means is that I start living off my savings and stop worrying about uh, money coming in. Right. Uh, so it'll be a shift in my thinking, uh, because really, as a freelancer, as a lifelong freelancer, the last time I had a job was 1985. And that was working in the recording studio. And before that, I was a security guard for about six months. I worked in a, I was a stock boy in a store. Um, you know, I delivered the newspaper. I, I was a dishwasher for two months. You know, it's all these mick jobs, basically, I had before. So I've never had a real job except working in that recording studio. And so you learn pretty quickly when you're a freelancer that you got to put money away for taxes. Your tax bill, there's nothing being, de being deducted from your paycheck because there's no paycheck. Right. And when you do get paid, you can't if you get paid ten thousand dollars for a job, you can't like, you know, just spend the whole ten thousand. You've got to put some money away for taxes because you're going to get taxed. Right. Also for retirement. And I've got this mindset where I've been, um, you know, uh, been socking money away and not a lot of it, but enough so that I can at least not have to die when I'm 66. You know, I might, by the way, who knows? but but uh but I want to get more than a year out of my savings, basically. And I know, I know that there are some in your audience who are like, oh, for God's sake, he's talking about retirement and saving money. Like how unrock star that is. That's because <laughs> of that romantic notion that rock stars don't have lives. They're just like vagabonds who live their lives right. like gypsies and, you know, Sm smoking peyote in the desert. Exactly. And, and communing with the Aztec gods. You know, and, and all that. Yeah. Stuff. And while there may be that, they've also got to pay for the gas to get there, and they've got to, you know, and yep. they the bathroom like everybody else, and they get cavities in their teeth. You know, like like they're human beings. So sorry if it's not not to you guys, but to whoever is yeah is listening. I'm imagining is complaining. <laughs> no, you know what it is. I'll tell you this because I've always I've always been frustrated with you know like Hollywood. They always have for years have shown movies about the romantic boy meets girl and as soon as they they take it all the way up to a point where it's just about to get real and they have to decide you know whose toothbrush goes where and then that's the end of the movie they never seem to want to really look hard at something that's real so when you look at rock stars or in you know as to your point gypsies i've never seen anything about a senior citizen gypsy what happens when you get old and are you still sleeping on the streets with that back and that hip yeah you know? <laughs> bullshit you so, want a soft bed, you know, so I honestly, I, there should be a documentary on, you know, hey, what happens to rock stars when they're not 35 anymore and there's mortgages and there's, you know, reality, you know, yeah, yeah. reality, the fact, the very fact that you had the forethought to put away a few bucks, you know, well, that I mean, that really started, uh, well, it started in the jitters, but it really started with the TV movie where yeah. I but you know what? I gotta, I gotta be careful because I was, I was gonna get married. I was in my first real serious relationship, and uh, and I thought, you know, we were gonna have a kid, maybe, hopefully, and we did. And so, you know, I thought I gotta, and I want to own a house and stuff. So I, I just thought I have to get practical about this. But I, I, I should say, disclaimer: uh, I said the word gypsies first, and then you repeated it a couple times. But it's politically incorrect, and it's, and it's offensive to some. And I want, I wish to apologize on my behalf and Lance's behalf. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. No, it's catch me up. Where it's Roma. Uh, gypsies is a is a derogatory term. And oh. I said it first, so I'm not calling you out. It, and I'm just realizing that I shouldn't have said it in the first place. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'll throw down my apology. I, I guess no. I'm not as well read as I thought I was. Yeah, I, I apologize I... for. It. Don't worry about it. Suddenly <laughs> <laughs> got like I'm. I'm always aware that there's somebody listening who is annoyed because I'm talking about taxes and stuff like that, and 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 they're. They're annoyed because I'm tearing down the romantic notion, you know, of what music is. And now I'm imagining there's a Roma person out there saying, you can't use that word, that G word and so forth. So that's my problem. Well, there we go. See, there's the point of the podcast. I'm up to speed. I didn't even know there was a G word out there. I knew there was a few other letters out there, but I did not know. So, yeah, it's and it's I didn't I didn't want to make a big deal out of it, but I did want to acknowledge it. So, I don't think nice. we were slanderous. Well, to I, that I group. We we're pretty. Oh, no, in fact, I was portraying them in the romantic notion of uh, uh, portraying people, you know, in that world of as, as being free spirits and you know living on the edge and all that stuff. It was yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought so too. All right. well, we all well, so let's let's just shift gears. Can you tell okay. me, yeah, the offset orange guitar that is over your right shoulder? Yes, tell me about that. That is an Eastwood, which is a Canadian firm, uh, yeah. issue of a Surfcaster 12-string electric. Nice. And uh, if you look, you, you, there's another guitar, the Sunburst one, that's uh, over my shoulder as well, be, beyond the door. It's actually the same shape. It's just Sunburst. And that is an original Surfcaster from the uh, early 1980s. Uh, 1990s. Uh, right. Sorry. And the Surfcaster is an interesting guitar. It is an amalgam of all kinds of other guitars. The body shape is like a Fender Jaguar or Jazzmaster. Right. The F hole, the sound hole, is from a Rickenbacker. Knobs um, yeah. are from a Telecaster. The pickups are from a Dan Electro. I mean, I didn't put it together. This is how right. they manufactured it. The pickups Frankenstein. Are, yeah, yeah. Lipstick tube pickups from right. an Electro style guitar. Um, it's a real amalgam. And if you look at it from the side, it's quite interesting. It looks like a Les Paul Deluxe because it's got a, a maple top on a mahogany body. So, right. so it, it looks like a Les Paul. And, and uh, so it's got this, uh, this incredible mix of, of uh, things. And so I have a six string and a 12 string. Wow. Those are gorgeous. Yeah. I love that. And I, you know, the offsets are sort of a, a bit of the rage right now. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Being a head I had an original 65 <clears throat> uh, Jaguar, which is an offset body. Yeah. Sold it for, you know, for a good buck, but not as much as I, could have gotten had i waited or kept it you know uh, right i never played it they it wasn't a great playing guitar but you can see my green stratocaster up in the corner there seafoam green yeah uh, you know, catch there. it in the corner yeah oh there it is yep yeah. nice tortoise shell uh pick guard yeah it's yeah, those a are great. beautiful guitar beautiful guitar with an ebony fingerboard uh it's a strat plus it's beautiful do you have a, a favorite in your collection probably that strat but I have a Les Paul Deluxe as well. I just got a Guild acoustic baritone um, with eight strings. Oh wow! Amazing. My the guitar I play the most is my would be my first or second favorite is my Guild jumbo acoustic, and I play that all the time because uh, mostly I play acoustic these days. Right. Uh, yeah, those are nice. I like those old Guilds too. Oh, yeah. They're they're kind of un, un, like uh, I don't know. I don't want to say underrated because they are they're phenomenal, and when you can. Um, I had one a while back and I shouldn't have let it go, really. I think they're um, the star? underrated, actually. Um, uh, you know, I had a Gibson J180 uh, acstic that was similar to my guild jumbo. Yeah. Um, and uh, oh, 180s are nice. 
Yeah, and beautiful uh, uh, double pick guards like the Everly Brothers style and uh, star inlays on the neck and uh, a really pretty guitar. I recorded it and the Guild on the same song just to have two different acoustic guitars. But A being them, there's no question the Guild sounded better. Like it just yeah. had, it was uh, more hi-fi sounding. It was more, um, it just was more balanced. Um, it was a better guitar. And I felt that about other Gibsons as well, even though they're fine guitars. The Guild, for me, always outshoots them. And I've, there's a couple of recording studios in town that that feel the same way because they borrow the yeah. guitar. So, yeah. Well, and, and for some reason, well, not some reason, I, I get it. Like Martins are just, they just command a bigger dollar. Yeah. But at the end of the day, tone is tone. And, you know, when you when you can find that type of warmth from a Guild, yeah. I'm saying, let's go with the Guild. Uh, Bare Naked Ladies on their first record, Gordon, that guild, my guild, not the same model, but that actual guitar, I loaned it to them and it's all over that first record. Um, oh, nice. And I loaned them that Surfcaster that I just showed you as well. And I think maybe that Stratocaster, I've loaned them seven guitars for that record because uh, they were friends and and they went to Morin Heights in um, in Quebec uh, where Rush and the police and many other people recorded um, and they made Gordon there using my guitars. And uh, both Stephen... Page and Ed Robertson will say they 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 individually did a thing for um, for Boom ninety seven three that's online. You can see it. It's a video on YouTube and it's uh, behind the vinyl. It's called, and you know you sit in a chair and you play a record uh, on a turntable and you talk about it as it's playing. And both of them, both of them independently of each other, because I don't think they speak, said uh, <laughs> again, they said, oh by the way, that's Blair Packham's guitar on the on that song. That's oh awesome. wow. There you go. At the very end. And I wasn't waiting for it, but then I was happily surprised. It was nice. So yeah. <laughs> it's a good guitar. It, it led um, uh, Stephen, maybe to Ed too, I don't know, but Stephen, it led him to getting an endorsement with Guild. And so, and then he's, that's what he plays now. Guild. Wow. Yeah. Among other things that he owns, but his main guitars are just all because yeah. of you it's, and your guitar. Too much is just all because of me. That's yeah. what I say. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's awesome. Notice I have a microphone, for instance, in my room there. There's a couple of them. Uh, the only reason people use microphones is because I told them to. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, that's why I bought this one. Well, this, po this podcast is going a lot better because before when we had no microphones, it was just didn't didn't pop. I've always got the good advice. And you'll notice there's a door in the background of my shot as well. People yes. Privacy before. And then I just said, hey, you know what? What if we put a barrier up there that you could move back and forth? You know, and people, yeah, love that. you yeah, know, yeah. really. So my career has really been more about facilitating other people's lives and making them better. What's Appreciate now? Why that. did you start out with the version where you <laughs> slid the door into the wall and now you've uh, you've moved towards a, a more of a hinge thing? It's a uh, it's a space <clears throat> door, the pocket door. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm going to call it the Packham door after me, but uh, we call it the pocket door because, you know, it kind of fit. But Packham door yes. I thought, has a nice ring to it. And uh, yeah. Now, why didn't you decide to stay with the the beaded door just the beads hanging down to walk through why why did you walk away from that it's way too sexy i found that every time somebody would come through that door people would be instantly attracted to them and want to you know get yeah them. exactly all of a sudden yeah. the clothes would come off yeah. that, you know you know I what understand. i love you know what i love this this riff has flowed so smoothly <laughs> without any ums or ahs without any thought from the three of us somebody out there is like shit Blair Packham invented the door. Can you imagine? <laughs> I had no idea. 
I have a line. No in, idea. I have a line in one of my songs where I'm talking about a relationship that's not working, and I'm saying, "Do you think that? Do you think we would just add up like two and three makes four? And I had somebody come up to me after and say, "Um, I just wanted to say uh, that two plus three actually makes five. Oh, <laughs> and God. they were sort of apologetic, and they felt a little embarrassed having to correct me because clearly I'm not a moron. Yes. But apparently, yeah. I. So. Yeah, I, I'm you, a rock star. I haven't had to do math since I was five. That's right. I, I didn't know that answer. Yeah. Yeah. But, see, Blair's probably nicer because I would have said, "I want you to go home. And I want you to look up the word metaphor, <laughs> and then I want you to get back to me, you moron." Yeah. Well, I actually decided. I told that story at the next gig, and they weren't at that gig. And I, I told that story and just said, uh, uh, "And now they've gone and formed a band uh, called the Pedantic Bastards." And because uh, I think it's a band name, because I, I thought after they spoke to me, I thought pedantic yeah. bastard. And I thought, oh, wait, good nice. band. Name. <laughs> nice. There so are there? I am guessing all their songs are very literal. Is that probably? <laughs> <laughs> if, if I were to hazard a guess, a guess, there's just they're black and white. I can tell you this: they're very correct. There is not yes. a there's nothing there's nothing you can find fault <laughs> in their songs. Yeah. That's correct too. You know, I, it's funny because I, I used to cringe when I would, if I was listening to, um, I guess sort of nineties, if there's like nineties country when it's sort of like, just sometimes I I'm on, and I'm all about the storytelling and the painting of a picture and you know, whatever they're using, but the grammar used to drive me nuts. Like the ain't and, and yeah. yeah or just like it would, yeah. The, the tenses would be all wrong to make the rhyme. And yeah. I'm like, there's gotta be, like, I think this is what people have a problem with country. They love the music. There's the, some of the best guitar playing in the world is yeah. done in country music. Mm -hmm. And when people say, oh, I don't like country, I'm like, well, do you like the Eagles? Oh, I love the Eagles. Hmm. Okay. So really what we're objecting to is the lyrics. And I, I believe, I remember Radney Foster, I was reading another article about uh, songwriting from him. He's a really good songwriter. Oh, and, yeah. and, and he would say, I don't subscribe to Bubba-isms. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think was, you know, a bit of a slam to sort of the redneck era, but he goes, I just, I can't do it either. I, he's an educated guy. Yeah. And he says, I'm not going to do it. So if you hear my songs, you might not like them, but they're grammatically correct. Right. Right. Well, I remember, do you know the song, if she knew what she wants? I it's do not. Bang. It's from the eighties. It's the no. bank. If okay. she knew okay. what she wants. It's a great song. It was written by a guy named Jules Shear. And he, um, he also wrote uh, All Through the Night for Cindy Lauper, and he wrote uh, uh, Whispering Her Name for Alison uh, Moyet. He's a, he's a great songwriter. Um, and he uh, had a meeting with a record company guy. He told me this. And uh, record company guy, first thing he said was, uh, if she knew what she wanted is what it should be. And right. Jules instantly thought, okay, I don't want to be signed to your label. If you're going to be... <laughs> my grammar <laughs> just don't be a dick yeah yeah that's right uh, yeah that's right. yeah a guy named david sigerson now that i remember got polygram in america for years da did you say david what is david, it david sigerson sigerson yeah well, maybe there ought to be a band with that name that's, that's pretty a pretty good name it's uh, a pretty good name i i used to be up on all you know who was the head of what record label and who was the a and r person i used to know all that stuff i don't know you know i i guess that all that's gone away so i don't really do you know. miss that part blair like i i know like you seem very like you're a very secure guy in your own music history just talking to you, you seem like that but is there a part of you is like wow i really like flying at that level 
Oh yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I liked uh, having a rider. When I play now, there's no rider. There's a couple of bottles of water. You know, it was nice having some salami and some buns and you know some old mayonnaise that had been in there for a few hours, right? Um, that kind of thing. But um, no, it was it was nice being thought of. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was nice, really nice traveling on a tour bus. I liked that a lot. Right. Um, uh, I, what I love about that is the fact that the party can continue. When you are in a hotel, you've got to, and you got to play the next day, you, you want to go and wind down and get some sleep, you know, especially if you're singing, because you're going to have to sing. So you, you kind of have to wind down in your hotel room alone, or with, if you're unfortunate enough to be rooming with somebody, um, you know, you, that it, and it, it's, you might not get to, to you might finish playing well on, anyway, it might be a few hours before you're able to sleep. So right. on the road, on a tour bus, you can get on the bus, you can hang out with the other musicians, you can have a drink all while you're speeding down the highway. And then when you're tired, you just slip off to your bunk and you sleep and you get eight hours sleep and you wake up in a new town. You're like, you, you wake up in wherever. And, and then you have the whole day free. So you don't, you're not, you're not like uh, driving the whole day, right? Cause right. You overnight. And it's, I love it. And uh, when I would book tours with tour buses, I would try and book over like overnight drives for that very reason. And uh, other band nice. members, some didn't like it because it meant that they couldn't get lucky. You know, <laughs> I'm serious. That, that was, well, a, you can't take them to Buffalo yeah. with you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, then they have to find their way home and so forth. So yeah, uh, yeah but tour, driving in a tour bus, I, I miss that. Um, that's, and you know, the, uh, well, I make more money now, so I'm not worried about the money, but um, I don't make more money from playing music though. And it was nice to get paid more money for playing music. Right. The, you know, when I play live now, it's a, it's a crapshoot could be, could be zero. So when people say, why don't you, it's not about the money. Why don't you play for nothing? It's like, I do trust me, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, I try not to, because I think it's an acknowledgement of the work I put in and the skill I have as a writer and stuff. And I, I, I don't, I feel the money is a symbol really. Uh, and it's a symbol that I embrace um, because if I'm getting paid for my songwriting, it means I'm doing something right. Um, right. That's what I feel. So. No, I agree. And I think maybe just putting it in terms of, uh, of the new, the new order, I guess, is that um, you, this is your brand and you worked for years to build it and it is worth something. It has, it has value. So if, if That's Blair Packham is playing, I, I don't care if it, if it's just him and his guitar and there's no overhead, he needs to get paid for the brand that he worked for. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. And but, you know, I I'm very uncomfortable with this, this relatively new thing, um, newish to me in the last 10 years of the tip jar, like having oh, yeah. people to put money in the tip jar, man, yep. I, I feel like uh, that's when I start trotting out my, um, you know, my uh, uh, self-righteousness. I, I, I want to say I played Wembley Arena three nights in a row, you know, <laughs> I got a standing ovation, you know, and and uh, and that's not a good look. <laughs> Yeah. But, <laughs> well, I, I can tell you this. I have not I have not played any of the places that you have played or achieved any of the levels you have. And I were, we were playing a bar a couple months ago and the owner of that bar came up and put this big tip jar on the side of the stage. We have five guys in our band. And uh, I just I stopped and I asked him to take it away because I, 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 it's embarrassing. I said, look, you're paying us. And that's where this ends. Everybody here is spending money on your beer and, and whatever. That's yeah. it. The, the transition or the, uh, the, uh, the agreement is over. I don't need a tip jar. Right. And believe me, there's nobody on this stage that is playing 
for the money, <laughs> you know, like and a, an extra, some pizza money at the end of the night is not going to make or break us. And I think it's, it just doesn't look good on us. So I don't want it. When, uh, when we played during the pandemic, uh, my band is an acoustic trio with an upright bass uh, and the drummer nice. plays, uh, he plays a suitcase for a bass drum and he has a Pringles can for a shaker. And, and, you know, it's, it's all like sort of ad hoc sort of stuff. And so we yeah. could be outside really easily and we have three part and stuff so is that we, a gretch per, uh Pring, pringles can does gretch uh, yeah, make that yeah. pringles can okay. tps actually it's uh yeah nice that's uh, only funny for the musicians listening so <laughs> never mind <laughs> An string um yeah we played outside and sometimes people would come up and say uh, where's you know where's the hat you know where can we put some money and they'd have a 20 dollars yeah. bill. and i would say actually we're not accepting any money uh not because i'm above it and i'll take your i'll take your 20 dollars you know no sure. problem but but I felt like in the park, we can do whatever the hell we want. Nobody's going to, you know, if you put $20 down and then say, do you know any Doobie Brothers? I'm going to feel bad that we don't know any and we're not going to do any, even if we did Doobie Brothers. Right. At one point, <laughs> one point when we were doing this early on, the drummer didn't, hadn't quite, his name is Andy and a uh, great guy, but he hadn't quite caught on to the idea that we could literally do anything we wanted. So we're playing out in a park. There's a couple of people sitting on a bench nearby, they start to get up and go. And he said, oh, quick, quick, we've got to play something. Uh, uh, what are we going to do? And I said, why do we have to play something? He said, those, those guys are leaving. And I said, well, they have somewhere to go to, you know? And, <laughs> and he said, yeah, but we'll make them stay. And I said, why? So the bar manager will give us a bonus? You know, why? <laughs> so, so we'll get booked again? Why? Right, we'll get some free beer? Like we're in the middle of a park right now, dude. And then, and then uh, 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 a guy, a presumably homeless guy, a guy who looked like he was sleeping rough, maybe, sort of trundled through the area we were playing. Like he sort of walked quickly through. But he, uh, he, while he did it, he said, you guys do any Doobie Brothers? Like literally, he said that. And the drummer, Andy, said to me, do we know any Doobie Brothers? And I said, I turned, I said, Andy, I'm not doing requests from random strangers who aren't even going to stick around to listen. Okay. There, there's no reason for us to do a request, you know, and it's not that I'm, I'm curmudgeonly or bad tempered about it or anything like that. I just feel like, Hey, I'm doing this for us. You know, this is for me. Yeah. And if somebody had a request and I thought it was cool and we knew it, of course we do it. Sure. Fun. Nothing wrong with that. But, but I, I, I will not play brown eyed girl like ever. Yeah. Right. Somebody, this woman came to see us play and kept yelling out for brown eyed girl. And, uh, you know, she was not a friend of the band, had not seen us before. She said, Brown Eyed Girl! And spot on impression, by the way. Thank you. And eventually I started going, doing the, the opening riff. I started going, dun, 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 No. No. Yeah. And I did that every time. That is lovely. If it was between songs, if she would do it, I'd do it every single time so that she learned not to. Right. Yeah. Because nothing wrong with Brown Eyed Girl. Nothing wrong with Mustang Sally. Nothing wrong with Midnight Hour. Nothing wrong with any of those songs at all. You know, nothing wrong with Sweet Child of Mine. Not going to sing them. Sorry. You know, right. And if you don't like it, then put up with us until the end of the evening and then tell a bar guy or whatever to never hire us again. You know, whatever. Um, or don't come and see us again. You know, right. 
but well, I, like, sometimes it's just i mean that's not really the, the gig sometimes it's you know we have a show like we we do a show too and it's cover tunes we have we have originals and we yeah. have cover tunes yeah. and the guys in the band because usually i'm picking the covers uh, yeah. and uh the guys in the band would laugh said so basically lance you're saying we do songs by bands that everybody knows but we do the songs that nobody knows <laughs> and right. i'm like yeah because similarly i don't want to be the guy that's doing brown eye girl or yeah. I don't know. Pick, like the, the the standard joke amongst most musicians is the guy at the back of the bar yelling, "Hey, you guys know any Skinner?" You know yeah. that's kind of the same pattern. But that's a joke be, for a reason because it happens. Yeah. Well, in that Freebird joke that that audiences think is so hilarious, Freebird because they've heard that musicians hate it, so they do it. Right. Um, it's not hilarious, and uh, and the musicians yeah. are not thinking, "Oh my goodness, you're so witty for saying that." You know, um, it's uh, it's super annoying. I went to see Steve Earle once, uh, not long ago, uh, before the COVID, obviously, and uh, there was a guy near me who kept yelling out, "Steve!" Steve! <laughs> during during uh, during nice. quiet songs, and and it's like he just woke up from a coma or something and realized where he was. You know? <laughs> hey, wait a second, that's Steve. You know, it was, it's so bizarre. Like, why would you do that during a quiet, lovely song? And you could tell Steve Earl was getting irritated. Yeah. Why do people do that? They'll spend 85 bucks on a, on a concert ticket. Somebody like Steve Earl is about 85 yeah. bucks. They'll spend $500 on going to see Elton and then try and ruin his show. Like, why does yeah. it have to, it's that Facebook thing we were talking about before. Exactly. About themselves. They just want to hear themselves. Yeah, but Facebook is different, I think, because it doesn't involve alcohol. I, I generally think when well, people are in bars, does. <laughs> and they do this. So Bruce Springsteen tells a story because yeah. I'm not friends with Bruce Springsteen. So I'm not going to say this like I was talking to Bruce last week. No. So he tells this story. He was doing his acoustic show. If you remember, he had a whole bunch of black tacaminis on stage and he was going around to yeah. um, like Massey Hall type thing, yeah. a little more intimate. Yeah. And apparently there was a woman in the front row who obviously was pretty drunk and yeah. she's clapping and hooting and hollering. She's nowhere close to clapping on the beat. And so, so Bruce stops playing. I don't know what he was playing, but he stops playing and he looks at her and he, he addresses her. He says, listen, you need to stop yelling and clapping because it's rude. And also you're fucking up my rhythm. <laughs> and the whole crowd loses it, right? Like it was so funny. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And, and a guy like that, uh, good for him. I think that's fantastic. You know, the, the, the idea, as ticket prices got higher, the sense of entitlement among ticket buyers got higher too. Because the people who could afford a $500 ticket to go see somebody like Bruce Springsteen thought, you know, I've, I, you know, I paid for it. I pay your salary, that whole attitude. You know? Oh, right. right I, yeah. I can tell you what to do and I can do whatever the hell I want. I can yell if I want to, you know? Yeah. That sense of entitlement is really gross in this world. And you see that everywhere where things are expensive and, and you know, somebody can afford something that they know other people can't. And they sort of lord it over other people. And for me, music, man, it's such a sacred kind of thing. Not that you have to treat it with kid gloves. You know, you can still rock and roll and you can still party and so forth. But, but it's a beautiful, sacred gift. And why do we have to spoil it by making it all about you and your ego, which is really what that is. You know, it's right. like you want to be, you want to, you know, you want to, you're entitled. And okay, so let me ask you this question because the, we've already talked about, you know, the purpose of writing a song, um, you know, is to evoke a feeling. Yeah, to connect. at the end of the day, that's the deal. Yep. So the Eagles, I believe it. I don't know if they still do this, but at some point they had a sort of a rule that there's no dancing. 
You can't right. stand up and dance at their concerts. Now, I think they were trying to be polite to all the people that paid money to see them and want to see if everyone stands up, that's not cool. I think that was what they were doing. But there's the other argument of from the people that are going to the concert. Look, man, I paid good money and it's the Eagles and I want to dance because you're evoking a feeling. And there's some validity to that. Like you're going to something that's, you know, moving you. And now you're being told you can't dance. I don't know. I don't know where I sit on that one. Well, yeah, um, I sit uh, closer to the no dancing side, but I get I absolutely get your point. I feel like if I go to the beach and it's super hot and I'm feeling really free and, you know, and so forth, and I want to take my bathing suit off, I'm not going to even though I feel like it. And I, you know, I do, Hey man, I drove all the way here and I just feel like taking my bathing suit off. You I know. pay for parking. Yeah, or, or I visit a friend who has a pool and I, you know, I just, I didn't feel yeah. like the bathroom. I peed in the pool, you know? Um, I, I, I feel like just cause you want to do something doesn't mean you should be allowed to do it. You know, I mean, uh, and it's, if it's in a space with other people in your own home, dance to the Eagles all you want, you know, right. I, I don't know. Like it's, it's when there are other people involved, I think you have to forego some of your, your impulses, you know, some of your desire. You just have to, you know, because if it's going to be rude to other people, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think other people's feelings are important. I can't wait to do the write up for this podcast and the stuff that we have covered. <laughs> there's just, there's no Blair. He's hard. There's just no skinny dipping. Screw off. If I'm at a public beach and no playing naked, you no. know, if it's well, I know I have a few rules. Can't even that. pee in the pool. No, no. Listen, I I think skinny dipping is fantastic, and I think uh, as long as it's the thing, if it's a if it's a place where that gets done, right? Go to town, brother, sister. I know, I know. Well, I was I was kind of being facetious. I understand, but yeah. you have rules. Uh, no shorts on stage. Yeah, I'm serious. Are you putting on a show or not? Are you putting right. on? Are you showing off your your horrible uh, calves and your knobby knees, or are you sh showing off your your song and you're, you're trying to evoke a feeling? Are you trying to evoke a feeling of repulsion? There you was know? a time in the '90s that that shorts were acceptable yeah, on stage. In the '90s, were a, a, it was a very short period, yeah, the a year and a half. We're a desolate decade for someone like me, the no, no shorts guy. Yeah. Bare naked ladies wear shorts yeah. all the time, but you know they're wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like Blair and I could have played in the same band. I, you know, I'm not big like with my guys. I'm not big in a dress code, but it's like, look, let's just let's pretend that we're here to do a professional job. No sunglasses. I mean, unless you're Roy Orbison, there there sure. are there are exceptions definitely, but but if you're like the guitar player in the band and you're standing off electronic. Yeah being mysterious with your sunglasses on screw that you know take mm -hmm. it for me that's the way i feel and also uh yeah like like wear a slightly nice shirt or something like like look like you put some effort into it <laughs> <laughs> oh it's a slippery slope when you start <laughs> you look up, look up uh, paul anka the guys get shirts on uh youtube um he has a, a lot of thoughts on that and, he, and it's the language is really amazing actually so yeah, yeah. I love oh, it that we've now yeah. gone down the road to giving fashion advice to rock stars. Yeah, yeah. Well, no one, no That's one, fair. believe me, nobody would take fashion advice from me, but really, the no shorts thing. Um, no, no running shoes of the sort of running variety, the sort of high tech running shoes. 
uh, sneakers, Converse, um, you know, that kind of thing. But the high-tech running shoes, you know, it's like wearing your soccer cleats on stage to in my Right. <laughs> Unless you're the drummer. That. I mean, maybe they need a specific shoe to work that bass pedal. I don't care. What oh, no. For sure. Um, yeah, David, David Spade, who's one of my favorite. I don't know why I'm cutting out here. Uh, David Spade, one of my favorite. He has a thing where, you know, he, I was watching him do stand-up. And he looked down and when some guy was in the crowd, he's wearing shorts. I said, hey, man. What's with, what's with the shorts? Like you thought, I'm wearing shorts now. I'm going to Spade tonight. I just keep the shorts on. Are you saving those? Are you saving the pants for Louis C.K.? Like, what's the mission here, right? And I just I laugh because it's like exactly right. Shorts just say, I don't care. Yeah. When you, I mean, I wear shorts all summer long, but I, but, sure. but when I'm playing, I wear long pants always, yeah. and uh, and that's just the way it is. Hottest day of the year, I don't care. I'm wearing long pants because it's, I'm playing music and music is a little sacred to me. So I want to present it in a way that I want to present it. Now, if you're in the Beach Boys or something like that, and you, you know, or you're in Blink-182 and you want to wear shorts, go to town, that's fine. But nobody in my band will wear shorts. You know? <laughs> Put on your pants, guys. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Guys get pants. So. That's our next tour, we're just not even wearing pants. Yeah. That's it, well, no you know, pants. The Chili Peppers already pulled that off. You're exactly, exactly. I'm, <sighs> I'm not averse to that either. I, it's not like nudity bothers me. It's that I feel like there should be a certain amount of decorum for for music, for the presentation of music. That's all. Yeah. Well, I think we're, you know, in the 40s and 50s region. I think nudity, that ship has sailed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Nobody wants to see that. I know, I know. Blair, I got to thank you for doing this today. I'm sure there was a hundred other things that you could have or should have been doing. And I appreciate you spending time with Andrew and I. You have expanded your brand and your your audience by nine people. So I really think, you know, that was a good job. I'd like to say hello to all those nine people by name and birthday. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, we finish every episode with a speed round. It is a very unscientific way of getting to know you really fast. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's just when we give you the answer, it's A or B, you choose okay. one. And Andrew runs it and he's he's awesome at it. So go ahead, Andrew. I, I've okay. seen this list, by the way. And this is this I'm going to say is the most eclectic lightning round we have ever had. And I think Blair is just the guy to, to handle it. So there you go. Andy. All right. All right. Here we go. All right. Bruce Springsteen or Freddie Mercury? Bruce Springsteen. Fender or Gretsch? Fender. Play it hot or play it cool? Play it cool. Nice. Cable TV or YouTube? Uh, YouTube. Edinburgh Playhouse Theater or Wow Hall in Salem, Oregon? <laughs> uh, Edinburgh Playhouse. Lake Louise, Alberta or Yosemite? haven't been to either so uh Ooh. lake louise well i've been to lake louise but stay, only stay canadian yeah i, I, I like that on a bus on a tour bus and and, and said oh wow look at that yeah. <laughs> iced tea or lemonade iced tea waffles or the trucker's breakfast steak and eggs waffles hotel or motel hotel and lastly <laughs> rolling stone magazine or cream oh that's a really tough one are we talking the classic era in the 70s? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, actually, that's the only one we talk. Yeah. I would still go with Rolling Stone, even though Cream was amazing. Cream was funny and stuff, but I, uh, Rolling Stone, yeah. Lots so of it really didn't matter what era we were talking anyway. You were still going to pick probably, Rolling Stone. Yeah. But, but in the 70s, <laughs> Cream was pretty great. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, Blair, thank you so much for joining us on Backstage Lowdown. It, uh, it was awesome to have you out this afternoon. 
Yeah, I, I'm really pleased to have been a part of it. Really, uh, to allow to be allowed to spew my opinions with you guys is really a pleasure. So thanks. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Thanks, Blair. It was a real pleasure meeting you. Likewise. Now I'm glad I wore pants. 